Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Nick Gall. Hi Nick. Hi y'all, how are you? I'm good, welcome, welcome on board. Uh, can't wait to hear from you what's an idea that's been helping you live well. Well, uh, an idea that recently came to the forefront in my philosophizing uh, pretty much in the last year is the concept of hope. And it was a pretty big surprise to me because I've been doing philosophy since I was an undergrad. I got my BA in philosophy. And hope was never that big a deal. There's no really well-defined philosophy of hope. There's certainly some books that have been written on it, but it's not one of the top five concepts that always gets debated, like beliefs and knowledge and mm. you know, reason and all those things. Hope is kind of this outlier. But it's also surprising to me because my favorite philosopher is uh, Richard Rorty. And you know, he wrote a book called Philosophy and Social Hope. And even that didn't really wake me up to the importance of hope philosophically. So uh, about a year ago, I was reading you know, yet another book around um, pragmatism. Uh, this one was called Pragmatism as Transition. And maybe... just because of all the other things I was thinking and feeling and reading and doing, a passage in that book just made the light go on for me. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read a short section from it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when philosophy itself is interpreted through the lens of these traditionalist notions, it turns out that philosophy is best understood as a theory and practice of hopeful cultural criticism. One name that pragmatists have used to refer to such a conception of philosophical practice is meliorism. The central idea of meliorism is that a philosophically robust conception of hope can function as a guide for critique and inquiry. And it was that philosophically robust conception of hope that just, you know, hit me between the eyes. I suddenly realized I'd never heard a philosophically robust conception of hope. And as soon as that happened, I dropped everything. Believe me, I was in the middle of trying to pin down half a dozen other things in my philosophical worldview. I just dropped it all and just dove, you know, feet first into finding some kind of rich philosophical conception of hope. And I kept coming up empty. So here I am almost a year later, and I've, I've filled in a lot of the, the cracks. Um, I've even written a couple of essays um, around hope now. Um, but I still feel like there's this immense void that I'm only scratching the surface of. Interesting. Yeah, and I'd love to, um, to open this for discussion, see what we come up with during this conversation. I'm interested in hearing if, you know, the concept itself or... Or anything or anything closely related actually um, has come up in in your personal life at some at some point were you ever looking before then for a conception of hope or did you find a situation in which you had to hope for the best or or do anything like that well that, that's the other funny thing is that once this notion of hope is front and center for me I look back on my entire life and I feel 
that hope's been driving it from the beginning, but I just didn't conceptualize it that way. So to rewind way back, um, what I became very philosophical before, you know, going to, to college, what have you, and, you know, getting formally trained in philosophy. Um, I, I always had a philosophical bent and I think it originated with, um, my, you know, becoming an atheist, right? Back when I was about 12 or 13 or somewhere around there, I'd been raised religiously in the Episcopalian faith, and um, I just stopped believing. And I really started questioning, you know, all of my religious beliefs. But what scared me, I mean, literally scared the bejesus out of me, was the notion that if there is no God, if there is no afterlife, then Mm -hmm. when this life is over, it's the end, right? And ever since then, I've been grappling with that issue of, you know, the finiteness of life. Um, and so to me, when, when I look back now at all my philosophical endeavors, it really has been around this notion of how do I cope with the, the finiteness of, of not just my own life, but human life in general, you know, uh, humanity, uh, and the future of humanity. If, you know, as I've become a um, Darwinian naturalist, you know, the human species like all other species, will eventually go extinct. And Mm -hmm. that can be a very bleak thought. Um, And in various ways, I've been trying to avoid that conclusion. Um, And all of my philosophical research in some way, shape, or form seems to revolve around either how to cope with that or maybe how to find a way to escape that fact. So uh, my application of hope currently is really just the realization that we all develop our personal philosophies to give us hope. Mm. And when you start to see it that way, now it pops up everywhere. So take, for example, William James's um, book, Pragmatism, right? Which introduced Mm -hmm. the world and popularized pragmatism after Charles Peirce. A lot of people see that as outlining a philosophy regarding what truth is, right? That's the big takeaway. Pragmatism has this very unusual view of truth. But if you if you have your hope hat on, you now see it as I think he intended it. The whole book is him trying to come up with a median, a way of hoping in between what he called optimism, right, of religious mm-hmm. belief that's sure of salvation because it's you know, guaranteed by God, and pessimism of pure materialism. And he coins, he doesn't quite coin it, but he, he embraces the term meliorism to kind of work out a philosophy of hope there in the book Pragmatism. But almost nobody looks back on pragmatism or that, that book or the entire philosophy as being a philosophy of hope. It's almost been completely uh, elided. So um, for me now, you know, it. First of all, having this new appreciation of hope gives me hope every day. Um, I'm, I'm very optimistic about where my project is going, but it's also helped me reinterpret the path of my own life. So it's had a pretty big impact. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so for anybody listening, miliarism would be something like the ism of better instead of the ism of best in the case of optimism. So I like that. Um, in a recent exchange I did, I had with uh, my friend Brian Cam, uh, we're experimenting with a new podcast format, and uh, we discussed God. 
And it was interesting because I suggested to him, you know, what can be abstracted from all the different ways people really imagine God. And I told him that a possible um, abstraction of God would be the kind of idea you turn to in when you're in dire straits or, you know, when you're thinking bad things. And then and then it doesn't have, you know, it, it can be this kind of uh, a God with like a some sort that's represented in some form and maybe you know you think it's a man with a beard it it could take on many many different forms it can be completely abstract or kind of um yeah sometimes god is just is literally just an idea that you're like okay i've no idea what's going on i've no idea what's going to come in my future i'm going to think about this concept and this is just literally the concept that will somehow miraculously make me move on from here with um with renewed uh vigor or or hope you know so uh, it's interesting that we landed in kind of uh, similar uh places but that's god as for hope yeah i mean to me what i do first is of course go to greek and in uh, classical greek uh yes. hope is um elpis and elpis interestingly uh is hope is kind of a secondary um meaning of elpis which is originally expectation so just expectation in more uh in more in a more neutral way but then if you kind of see the evolution of the meaning i i quite like it because it's um it implies that you do use your uh, rational faculty in your mind to kind of see something which is Uh, possible out of all the things that are possible are permitted by uh, laws of physics and whatnot that are quite probable uh, or not even quite probable but are probable in some way and then develop an expectation of this happening rather than the rather than the other things and you know if you have the expectation of it meaning that you kind of um hold it in front of you and aim for it, then it's also letting nature take its course because that's what you're paying attention to and what you actually expect. And that kind of brings about the thing. That's, if that makes sense, that's kind of um, yeah, I think how I view it things. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to Elpis and the Greeks. Um, they had a very, as you I'm sure are well aware a very uh, ambiguous relationship with the pros and cons of hope, right? Reflected in the myth of Pandora's box. Mm. Uh, and this has been followed up uh, with uh, by a number of philosophers, including Nietzsche. Um, remember, uh, Pandora opens the box and all the world's ills come out, right? But one spirit stays behind hope. Well, this raises a bunch of questions. First of all, what was Hope doing in a box full of, you know, ill spirits? Some have claimed, including Nietzsche, that Hope is the worst spirit of all because it gives us that false sense of expectation that Mm. things are going to get better, a belief in some other power, thereby weakening us, and so on. So Elpis, you know, as Hope, uh, and whether it does good or bad uh, is very much up in the air and something I'm trying to grapple with. My second Elpis story um, uh, is 
as I mentioned, not many philosophers have highlighted uh, hope. I, I thought none had. Turns out I was wrong. Turns out, um, as as you know, um, a lot of uh, pre-Socratic philosophy and even post-Socratic philosophy, all we have are several fragments from those philosophers. Heraclitus being a great example, just these bare fragments. Well, it turns out there's a sect of philosophers where we only have one fragment. It's not even a fragment. It's a reference to this band of philosophers in Plutarch, right? Just a passing. It's the only mention in all of history of this group of philosophers. And they're called the Epistokoi, right? The Epistokoi, those who hold hope as the highest, most important human uh, aspect. Because they believed, you know, without hope, life can't be lived. And so uh, I posted recently on Medium, where I occasionally post my musings, that uh, I want to create the Neo-Elpistikoi, right? A new band of philosophers who hold Mm -hmm. hope, you know, as the highest highest good. But I also want to follow up on God for a second. I, I couldn't agree more that God... As providing hope, a belief in a in a supernatural power beyond our power is tightly linked to um, uh, being in hopeless situations. I've always felt the same thing, and I've seen in others' writings. Rorty mentions this in passing. A lot of people think Rorty hated religion. He didn't. He had a you know, somewhat ambivalent attitude towards him. But he at one point says, "Look." When life was so dire, so I think he uses the word wretched, when life was so wretched, it made perfect sense to adopt these belief systems to get through day-to-day life. There's no other way to do it. So he respects that. Recently, like in the last couple of weeks, I just started digging into, well, has anybody written about this in more depth, this relationship between the direness of life and God. Turns out there's an entire body of literature around this. It's called existential security, and it's Mm. a major theory in secularism now. It's been written about for the last 20 years, and there's even been empirical studies done across cultures and across time to prove that cultures that have more dire circumstances, poorer, more disease, you know, uh, more uncertainty, more chaotic environments, have higher rates of religion. So I do, I do acknowledge that the kind of hope that I believe in, and we'll maybe get to that because it's a very different kind of hope in terms of a highest hope, um, is a very privileged version of hope. It comes from a place where you know I, having lived in the you know late twentieth, early twenty first century of the United States haven't really had the kind of material deprivations that would drive me towards mm-hmm. religion as in some other cultures. So um, this isn't my view of hope. My vision of how we should hope um, isn't for everybody. It only works for somebody who maybe has moved beyond the existential insecurity that many people still face and have a feeling that, Hey, humanity we're getting there. You know, we, we're in a good place and it's getting better. There's lots to be improved, but we're on an upward trajectory and maybe we don't need supernatural help to, you know, have a human culture that believes in itself for its own future. Right. Yeah. I think you see it um, in, in classical times and in other ancient times and really 
every time you look at it, when you have uh, a society where there's the creme de la creme of that society are people who are increasingly becoming godless as they become richer. You know, I think it's Absolutely. just, uh, it's very hard to, <laughs> to ignore that um, tendency. Uh, to go back for a moment to, um, to El Peace, Hope, and, um, and also part of the ideas around them, I think it's, it's also worth mentioning that, you know, the whole uh, medicinal uh, theory of the four uh, humors, right? Uh, that's also interesting because the understanding was that if you had too much blood, you become too optimistic. So you would be diagnosed as someone is having, oh, you have too much blood, you you're too you're way too optimistic and we should <laughs> we should calm you down a bit you know maybe and you know in real life it, it would be maybe applied to like things like mania or something like yes. that where they would be like oh that, that person has way too much blood um so it is interesting and it's interesting to see that uh, this kind of looks at one end of the spectrum of of exaggeration or uh, superfluousness of just people having too much of a thing because you can imagine the person who, you know, puts all their money on this one stock that they're absolutely sure is going to perform very well in the near future. And then, of course, it, it tanks or something like that. So it, it makes me think that, you know, the account I gave of hope as being an expectation that's supported by rational thought should be probably part of our conception of hope. We don't want to divorce it from rationality, and then it gives us more uh, robustness, if you like, because we're not going down that route of, oh, I'm a very hopeful for a person. Um, and interestingly, you know, that touches on, on faith, too, of just saying, it's like, this is there, that's it, I'm not touching it, I'm not messing with it. Uh, I have this um, unbreakable faith in something, and it's not about rationality, right? I think for hope to be a robust concept, it has to be married with uh, rationality. Uh, so I think that should be part of the concept. Yeah, uh, I think rationality, imagination, desire, emotion, all are mixed in with hope. All need to be balanced in there. And one other aspect that I want to highlight, which is action, right? Um, ho inert hope is is a bad thing. Hope that leads to action that's that's a good thing. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a guy named Roger Simon who wrote an essay called um, "Between Hope and Despair Is Resolve," and I'm almost tempted sometimes to use the word resolve instead of hope. Um, I, you know, I resolve that this will happen. I resolve that. Because resolve brings in the absolutely essential requirement that you're going to act on your hope, right? So uh, optimism, as James defined it, was uh, a form of hope so extreme that you sat back and did nothing right. because right. you were sure it's going to happen. And yes. despair leads to inaction as well, right? You're so despairing. This is like anti-hope. You're so sure that good can't happen. You sit back and you don't do anything. So that sweet spot, you know, Rhea Medea. Um, it's a type of prediction, basically. Yeah. And something where th there's a path 
to fulfilling the expectation. You work towards planning yes. some way of achieving the expectation. So, um, in fact, uh, analytic philosophy has analyzed hope a little bit. And there's there's one philosopher who uses um, the movie um, The Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. as an example of why pure expectation plus desire is not sufficient for hope. And he compares and contrasts Red, you know, who's the inmate who's been there forever, mm-hmm. and um, uh, what's his name, the new uh, the new inmate um, whose name I'm blanking on. I don't know. It's been a while. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So um, both have a desire to get out of prison, and both have some degree of expectation that it could happen. Red keeps going before the parole board every like five years, so both, in some sense, have hope. But it's clear that Red has despaired. He doesn't think he's ever going to get out. And, um, you know, the new inmate takes action. He digs this tunnel over the course of, you know, 10 or 20 years and finally does escape. So this notion Mm -hmm. of resolve or, you know, leading to action, I think, is absolutely essential to a healthy concept of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I also see, you know, reflecting back on my life in times where I was um, in darker places, really what was uh, lacking is a, a kind of view on how anything is going to get better, right? That's what really um, does us in eventually is if you feel trapped. And we're, I think, extremely gifted in generally coming up with the narratives or uh, first of all with the narratives that help us cope and then also with the um, the kind of scouting that we do to find ways that take us out of dark places like we're generally extremely gifted at doing that but there are times in life where you don't see that and I think that's where um, despair comes in by the way despair uh, i should just mention it it's basically latin hope for latin hope in latin is spes and despair is just the um lack of spes antonym for that so that's just interesting to note but uh when you don't see a way forward basically when you feel trapped that's when you um give up all hope again we have an idiom for that uh so i think it's it should be important for us to have the kind of thinking if we do end up in a darker place in our life to note that whatever we do life does go on and have that kind of um and here is an interesting part because if you don't see a way out i think it could be beneficial to just kind of go out on a limb and try a one last kind of thing, a last ditch effort to do something with faith, you know, and just believe that there is something on the other side. And and that's interesting because I have thought about it. In my life, it's easy to solve everything with, with rationality and talk about it and explain it away. With that also for me, like I recognize that at a certain point in my life, I had to kind of take a leap of faith again we have an uh, we have an idiom for that and and do something just hoping that uh it would land right like a hail mary thing which is 
I think not a hopeful thing, but a desperate measure. So I'm watching the language I'm using and it's very yeah, interesting. It is very um, interesting. Out of desperation, you can actually do something which is faith-based, which is actually going to make you end up in a place where you do see a path forward and then you can go on to be hopeful. So it's interesting. Yeah. There is that expression, you have to hit bottom before you can go up again. So I think that's that's also related. But let me add to uh, my my views on hope, this other aspect, because if anything, I think people might find my vision of hope pessimistic, not overly optimistic. So uh, I combine my sense of hope with my other strong feeling, because um, that's eventually what all philosophies are. They're based in, in feelings and temperament and so on. And that's my belief. Um, I'm a tragic pluralist, right? Uh, being a good pragmatist, uh, I think most of the classical pragmatists and certainly Rorty uh, emphasize that, that hope is ultimately tragic in that um, we live in a pluralistic world and hopes are going to conflict. There's no way we'll ever have a unified single hope that that unifies all humanity. That that's at least my belief. Um, in that case, while hope, you know, uh, fills the heart with um, you know sometimes joy and optimism and so on, there's also the realization that as I achieve some hopes, other things that I might have pursued, uh, I forego. And there's a there's a tragic aspect to that. And I could talk about areas of my life where that's that's happened. Um, but what I've come to realize, and this is what I wrote my uh, second essay on Mielerism about, was that if you take this almost transcendental view of hope, and it's, it's the hope that new hopes will always emerge, even mm. though they conflict, even though they can lead to tragedy, the, the perpetual hope of hope always going in new directions and maybe not my hopes all, you know, I'll come and go, but hopes of others, you know, beyond me that hope uh, manifesting itself forever is the most we can hope for. So that way I can kind of deal with personal tragedy, uh, human, you know, tr tragedies at the you know, humanity level, the fact that uh, humanity is only one species among many that will, you know, come and go. Um, the fact, as long as we keep hope alive, um, that's good enough for me. And it doesn't have to be any one person or any one person's hope or any one culture's hope. The fact that new hopes spring eternal from the human breast um, gives me hope. Yeah, I think that. Um... It's very rare, if not completely impossible, that we would have, we, that we would imagine um, a kind of place that we want to land in, in time, in our life, and achieve, and then for it for us to actually get there and and have it be exactly what we dreamed of, right? And it's more about um, having that thing in the distance, and that's the direction where we're going, right? Rather than uh, clinging very strongly to this one um, one representation of it because we're probably going to be disappointed. We're probably not going to get there. We're also very often discounting what actually are the consequences of really do 
of really achieving something which we wanted, right? So be careful what you wish for because um, you want to be rich and famous. Maybe you haven't thought of the fact that now with weirdos have your address and um, they're, they're maybe in love with you because that's how their mental illness manifests itself or something like that. And you're, you're going to be subject to like crazy people uh, following you around. Right. And that's, and then you'd be like, Oh, I, I would happily give up my celebrity status, things like that. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear about uh, how it actually um is applied in in your own life like if you mentioned uh, thinking about uh, the future of humanity or anything else where this actually applies yeah well so in my own life um like everyone i've had my share of of dashed hopes um so maybe one of my first ones was um i was always a stem guy in in high school i thought i'd be a nuclear physicist or something <laughs> And I, I, I get to college and I'm taking the advanced intro to physics and I'm barely staying alive. I mean, I'm like pulling a C and the C was like getting a 32 on the midterm. Um, and I'm working on that one course more than any other course. Um, so I go in to see my advisor and he says, well, you know, if you devote every waking hour to making it in physics over the next four years, you'll do fine. <laughs> Hmm. Um, but, um, you know, it's going to take an all out effort. It, it's really all consuming. And if your heart's not completely in it, um, then think about doing something else. And that was a, a traditional washout kind of course, uh, for, um, a particular kind of major back then it was physics. Maybe now it's computer science. Who knows? So I thought long and hard about it and I, I decided not to do it. And it was a very hard decision because you have your hopes. I mean, I'd have... Now it doesn't seem like very long, but four years of hopes that I'm going to be this kind of person. This is my future. This is my career. And have that mm -hmm. completely obliterated and then have to like reimagine mm. myself. That's hard. So now fast forward. This seems to happen every 10 years to me, by the way. I don't know what I do wrong. but So now I'm, I'm approaching 30 and I, I dropped out of physics. I majored in philosophy with a minor in computer science because I was already programming. And I go into the computer industry. I become a programmer and software engineer and so on. And doing that for about 10 years. And now I'm getting kind of bored with it. You know, I'm always in the back room just coding when they throw in raw mm. meat to keep you, you know. That's a common, <laughs> that's a common trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I want to do something out front in the front office. So what do I do? I can either go to business school or law school, uh, is my thinking. So I go to law school. I love law school. I'm one of those weird people who actually likes law school because it's all philosophy. It took all jurisprudence. And uh, graduate from law school, go into the practice. And uh, another, you know, uh, curveball, um, you know, for various reasons, we had relocated out to California, which had been one of my big dreams. Um, and we had to move back to to Boston. Uh, my wife's mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer and we decided you know, to be close to her. So I left this dream job at a dream firm, come back to Boston to a very nice firm, but certainly not my dream firm. And within like two or three years, I'm hating the law. Right. So here's part two. Now, you know, what am I going to do now? I've just spent three years in law school, three years practicing. Can I really just, you know, abandon the law and go in a new direction? 
that was very dark. That was a very dark time mm. to try to reimagine myself then. But I did. And I went on to have an 18-year career as an information technology analyst at a company called Gartner, some of the best times of my life. So the, the silver lining in all that is in all of my setbacks, in all of my darkest times where I really felt um, what I'd been hoping for had been dashed or taken from my grasp, I found a new hope that turned out to be even better. And that's one of the things I, I would love to be able to convey, you know, when I finally get down to writing up this, this philosophy and conveying it is that it really is hope that keeps you afloat. But the risk is your hope can be dashed and you're going to have to reinvent a hope and that's hard to do. Or mm -hmm. as you point out, you achieve your hope. And that's even more dangerous sometimes yeah. because now like what's next? So this notion of being able to create new hopes, that's the fundamental part I want to try to provide some new insights into. Pursuing the hope, I think everybody's got advice on how to do that. But when you're trying to find a new hope for whatever reason, good or bad, that seems to be less uh, well addressed in things that I've read. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think there should be emphasis in um, educating people on yeah really if if we could figure out a way to really uh, have kind of some sort of method to, to come up with hope when we most need it and by hope again I mean seeing um, yeah some sort of a, a glimmer of light in the darkness and just follow that um, it reminds me a time when, as a tour guide, I worked with a evangelist Christian lady, a born again Christian, and I had a blast going with her. Like because the, despite a vast difference in 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 worldviews, I was just very honestly asking her um, interesting questions about her faith, and she recounted the story of her life, which was far far from being easy. Um, it included sexual abuse, drug abuse, um, just feeling of uh, worthlessness, promiscuity in uh, in her words later on. So very, very low self-worth. And at some point she came upon this um, idea of, of salvation, you know, of just mm -hmm. giving your soul up to Jesus and have him save you and be born again. And that was very interesting to me because I could not deny, despite you know any kind of mental gymnastics that I could um, muster up using words or anything like that, I could not deny that she was she's had a very 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 troubled life up until then. And again, she was in a she was in a dark tunnel, and here is this community that reaches out to her. A person without, with barely any self-worth, telling her, well, you know, Jesus loves you, and we love you. And, you know, if you are going to ask me personally and my own beliefs, uh, is that um, it comes with a price, too, you know? And the price, like, if you ask me, yeah, it's not the greatest set of axioms that she has to, um, to vow to basically take her, her own axioms. Like, it's not a great set of them, right? Uh, believing in um, 
Armageddon and, and all this stuff that eventually is going to create discord because I very gently and purposefully, even though I kind of knew the answers to these questions, I she told me that she loved me very much because I was Jewish and I had the, the blood, whereas she's like coming from the outside and she's trying to be as, as good a Jew as possible. And I'm, I already have the blood and that's why we go hand in hand and she loves me and it's like, it's great that I'm Jewish. I come from the same bloodline of Jesus and David. Um, so I was like, okay, well, this means that surely I'm going to, uh, when the rapture comes, I'm going to be assumed too into heaven, right? Um, and she was like, ah, well, <laughs> you'd have to repent first. Right? And I knew the answer, but it, it was my gentle way of, of showing her that, you know, with all her love, like there's going to be a, a time when she needs to uh, chastise me or something like that. Like there is still something between us. But anyway, the whole point is that that came as hope to her, that community yeah. reaching out to her and saying, hey, Jesus loves you. We love you. You just have to accept this set of axiom. You know, could I genuinely tell myself that I wouldn't be electing to take this second chance and be transported out of a dark tunnel into the light? Um, you know, and she had to, she had to then maintain that thing. And there's a whole process of, people radicalizing because of wanting to fit in you always tend to try to fit in more fit in more and eventually that means stepping one going one step ahead and coming with a with a more cuckoo kind of conception of something um but i could not blame her for one moment for for taking for making that choice it was beautiful to her she was in a dark um, tunnel without without end in sight, and then there's this gilded path. Just you know, people kind of excavating their way and uh, lending a hand. So, well, that's a beautiful example of what I mean about the the tragedy of hope. He, she got so many wonderful gifts from her hope. You know, it 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 saved her life. I'm imagining, and yet it comes with trade offs. She now believes that you are unredeemed, right? And all Jewish people are unredeemed until they take Jesus Christ as their Savior. It may mean that she's now anti-abortion, right? Um, so I think the world's religions are a perfect example of the tragedy of hope. I mean, it's it's not all sunshine and flowers, right? Mm. The, the, the highest, deepest, most fundamental hopes are going to lead to conflicts, that's what I'm going to try to get across to people. Despite that, despite the conflictual nature of hope, and we're not talking about, I hope I find a parking space, you know, for the movie tonight. <laughs> um, so I don't have to walk that far. We're talking about the deepest, most fundamental hopes that drive the arc of your life. Th those are the big ones. Those are the ones that are going to cause tragedy. And there's always going to be some inherent conflict there. So what I want to help people do is by more philosophically analyzing what hope is, what consequences it has, what fruits it brings, and, and what you know, good and bad fruits, tragedies, um, maybe that deep understanding of hope makes us better able not to come together in some kumbaya moment and say, oh, we're all going to have one hope. That's not going to happen. But to understand that, that trade-off, as you've done 
yourself, you see all the good this woman's hope gave her after an absolutely, sounds like, tragic life, but you also saw some of the downsides. And not to maybe, maybe not to pass judgment on it, but to just accept it, right? To understand right. all is to accept all. This acceptance that hope isn't something that resolves problems. It doesn't. Hope causes problems. But hope keeps us going. You know, it, it keeps us going to have new problems. And that's a, you know, after, you know, I got my hope back, dropping out of physics or, you know, dropping out of being a lawyer, did it solve all my problems? No, it created new problems. But yep. at least those are problems I had the, the impetus because I had the hope to, to tackle the, the possibilities in front of me. And as you pointed out earlier, it's when we lose that drive because we feel like nothing is going to matter, right? Not that all our problems are, are gone or that you know, we, we can't deal with problems anymore, but just we just don't feel like there's any way to continue to address problems. That's when we've lost hope. That's when we have despaired, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and problems are, you know, as David Deutsch says, and I really appreciate his writing, uh, physicist and philosopher, problems are soluble and problems are also desirable. Uh, we're, we are problem solvers. Um, to solve a problem means to harness our uh, creative potential, which is essential for us to... Um, you know, it gives pleasure. So that's that's a good thing. And as I've said many times before in this podcast, creativity is the only sustainable source of pleasure. Um, it doesn't, you know, it, it contains novelty. Uh, in, it's inherently novel, like introduces novelty. Um, so problems are good. And yeah, I think that uh, we should be aware that the direction we're moving in is what matters is the process and we should readily and happily let go of the specific representation or kind of postcard moment that we had in our minds as we work toward something because we should expect that it's not going to be fulfilled in this way exactly, right? Because there's just going to be new problems. Uh, but the process matters, and to keep going, we we need that kind of hope, which is at the same time um, rational and um, and possible. Kind of is actually well, yeah. I guess that's that's part of having it be be rational. Like it's not something that's completely out of our control. Otherwise, it's more like faith. Yeah, I mean, but as you point out, sometimes. Uh, the lack of rationality and hope is a bad thing. You're, it's a fantasy, and it's never going to happen. It leads to delusion and very counterproductive. But uh, also, sometimes when you're so desperate, you have to act irrationally, right? Against right. all yeah, reason, yeah. you throw yourself into the fray. And that's when maybe imagination or simply will takes over. So for me, hope is the great unifier of human capabilities, reason, imagination, curiosity, and so on. In fact, I, I coined an aphorism a while back. I, I like to do that, although I'm not very good at it, <laughs> but it's fun. Um, reason, passion, and imagination 
are and ought only to be the slave of hopeful curiosity. This is a take on David Hume's, you know, reason should be the, the slave of the passions. And I always thought that was unbalanced, right? You know, I'm a big believer that passions have their place and reasons have their place, and they both add value to life. So I think of them both now as, as helping support our hopes. And I think that is a nice Medeus Ray for the two of them. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I, first of all, I think there should be harmony between this. Um, you know, if you go to Plato and look at the tripartite nature of the soul, I think that in uh, in Republic, Socrates describes the, the three parts as, um, you know, with desire and emotion, that they should be kind of uh, subordinate or subjugated to uh, to reason and but that's only because there there's a good reason why he presents it to his interlocutors like that but the truth is they should all work in harmony and each has its role um so i i completely agree with that uh but could you say a little bit more about why hope is something that that unifies all these things um Elaborate a little bit. Sure. Well, if you look at every philosophy that's out there, um, they all have an aim, right? The ancient Greeks all had aims of some form of good life, right? Mm. Yes. So uh, I, I would contend that uh, that aim can be characterized in terms of I hope that I attain that end. So we're mm. we're driven by our hopes. We're inspired. They 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 lead us to act. So reason and imagination and passion, these are all capabilities that have evolved in humankind. I'm, again, I'm a big Darwinian. So these are evolved capacities, but what's their point? You know, what should we use them for? And I I can't think of any simpler or more straightforward way of of characterizing the, the telos, you know, of of these capabilities as achieving hopes. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there's there's a question there. I actually I, I have to say I think that probably a concept that doesn't exist as uh, as an explicit concept, but that's not how concepts exist. We first we have concepts, and then we can make them explicit. And by making them explicit, we can think dialectically about them so that they actually become um, coherent. But one concept that is foundational, fundamental, I think, to all life is probably that of the good. So I think uh, a bacterium must have some sort of conception already it's not in words they can't they can talk but um fittingness basically this is fitting for me as a as a, and you know and when you say fitting for it's probably some some kind of wholeness or health and and act according to that like that's the very basic foundation so i think reason is really just the faculty for us to explicitly um, shift our attention toward toward goodness and and then this goodness in the universe fittingness between things 
is actually what helps us make sense of it rather than it be chaos. So it's interesting that you say hope. Like I think in humans, maybe if this is something that um, that sits above reason and imagination and these things, then it would be uh, uniquely human. So I guess that, um, yeah, that would prompt you to to call us uh, like the hoping species or something. Yeah, I'm glad you teed that up because I I do think there's a tension there about achieving a good and um, pursuing hopes perpetually. Let me me tease it out because one of the problems I've I've always had with, with worldviews that talk about you know, the good of a particular organism or species is how does that get reconciled with the creation of, of new species with new goods? So take your bacterium example. I have no doubt that the fittingness for bacterium as a, as a genus, I guess, not just a species, you know, has, has some form of, of the good. But then mutations happen and bacteria become, you know, multicellular or, you know, they become prokaryotes or whatever. They are no longer bacteria. And with that comes a different set of goods. Let's fast forward. We go from, you know, pre-hominid primates to hominids. A whole world of goods that never existed before opened up. So I, I agree with you that there's this continuum of goods, you know, from the most primitive life up through humanity. But as life has evolved, new goods have become part of our of different horizons. And it's, I think it's kind of hard for um, some philosophies to explain the, the perpetual emergence of new and different goods. And my whole philosophy of hope, remember, is I, I have this meta level of hope, right, that is divorced from any particular good, any particular end. Um, the, the ultimate end is generating and sending hope in, in new directions. Even evolutionarily, you know, some species beyond humanity will have ends, will have goods that we can't even imagine. And my, my philosophy accommodates that. I don't see other philosophies that, that are kind of static in that per species, there is a good, you know, there's a, there's a telos for every species. How do you then, how do they then explain the evolution of telos itself? Yeah. Well, I guess uh, I'm reticent to like make this a fully fledged philosophical discussion, but I guess at this point, uh, about 50 minutes in, whoever is listening is like up for that. So, yeah, I mean, I I do think that uh, first of all, that good as it's presented in, let's say, Platonic dialogues or Greek thought, would be the abstract thing that gives things their goodness. So any good thing would have that good in it. And um, and this is to me fittingness, just fittingness. Now, talk about in our life what is commonly conceived of as the highest good, or sumum bonum in in Cicero, the way he um, the way he adapted it from the Greeks. Uh, that has to be health, and then we tend to separate physical health from mental health, and so we're talking about. Um, 
for bacterium, it's very easy to say that all they need to care about is like physical health because, you know, it's a lowly bacterium. It's probably not conscious, whatever. And that's debatable. Like, I, I do think that there's somewhere on the low end of the spectrum when it comes to consciousness, but there's stuff going on that's not just mechanistic. Um, and then, so in, in those terms, like the highest good, I think, has to be health. And then apart from that, um, teloi or goals that are going to be, um, that's, is that tele or tele? Tele. <laughs> See, I don't know if it's, a, if it's male or neuter. Now Ivory is going to reprimand me. Um, we won't tell him anyway. about this episode. He yeah, yeah. Listen, so. <laughs> no, I, I love to be corrected. Um, and then, so the, the different ends that we look, that we look at are always, I agree that there's no end to like putting on new ends, ends, but philosophically, um, thought ends when we have an end of health and continuous, uh, and the continuous process of phronesis, which is just doing good, doing well in life commences once you have that framework that is just concerned with health in its undifferentiated form. So mental and physical are really the same thing. It's just very convenient and useful to separate them, but there is no real separation as we learn from cases uh, that deal with various things that are right between the mental and the physical, like anxiety, depression, um, any kind of mental state that we've been looking for, you know, chemical solutions to, and yet we can't find them because that's not the only answer. You have to go CBT, you know, you have to go other routes, you have to go meditation, you have to do all that stuff. Um, yeah, so that's just my my rambling on that. So I do think that hope for humans would be would be something because yeah, I do agree that humans probably have something like a lot more volume to explore in terms of of concepts and so on. Um, yeah, I do think that there is something that is um, common to all species, but humans can definitely build new concepts. Yeah, I like the lens of health. Let, let's play with that a little bit. Let's look at hope through the lens of health. And I'm going to pose two um, scenarios and see how you react to them. One is... Can you imagine, I guess we're going to be doing a little dialectic here. Um, can you imagine uh, somebody who is filled with hope, overflowing with hope, but is yet unhealthy? Is that possible? So that's very, that's dependent on our conception of hope. So that that's, uh, so a lot of things in, in dialectic, you, you have to assume and agree between you and yourself, you know, never mind other people. But you have to be able to state if if something is is good for uh, for the goal of health, and then look at that thing and say, okay, because I have an axiom that this is a good thing. Let's say friendship. Friendship should be good. Then we need to look at every instance of what is colloquially called friendship, but isn't good for health, as not friendship. Right, so let me turn it friendship. around the other mm -hmm. way. So here's the other scenario. Um, can you imagine somebody who has lost all hope and yet is healthy? 
um yeah again this this still this still uh, begs us giving a definition to hope and i'm not i'm not trying to to like evade this but this is uh i think this is what we are if we, if we say that hope is a good thing and we should have it which i i do think it is if we if we conceive of it as um again something which i already said before as um the kind of expectation to be able to be healthy in the future so um looking at a at a possible future in which health is possible and then letting it happen because you're rational so you know what's good for that so you're doing what's good for that and in effect living that life uh but of course if hope is just uh not not so much an expectation but just a sort of a general wish that you know may defy the laws of physics then of course that can be harmful if you hope you'll you're just going to stay afloat after you leave your uh, third floor window then hope is going to be harmful defined this way i think that's fair i think that's fair i i do think um hope properly understood properly defined will align must align um with some sense of flourishing. I strongly believe that. I, I use a different term for flourishing. I call it fruitfulness, but it's, it's flourishing. Um, so I, I can't recall if I've already mentioned this because uh, I talk about it so much. My whole project began as an as a, um, investigation and analysis research into fruitfulness, right? What, what generates fruitfulness? And is fruitfulness the greatest good? And I'm still convinced that in some way, shape, or form, fruitfulness is intertwined with hopefulness. But I, I do see hopefulness as, again, perhaps just a lens, a point of emphasis um, that I, I think has been neglected. And I, I, I've come to realize this more and more. I, one of the reasons I'm championing hope so much is it doesn't get any respect philosophically. Hmm. Um you know, Kant asked, he said, philosophy is concerned with three fundamental questions, right? Um, what can we know? That, that became epistemology, right? That, uh, what should we do? That was all of ethics. And his third question was, for what may I hope? And nobody followed up on that question <laughs> for a century. I shouldn't say no one. There's been books here and there written about hope, but it's, it's not one of the big you know, three or five. In fact, I just tweeted the other day a little diagram of all the branches of philosophy, and they're all there. You know, there's epistemology, ontology, political philosophy, ethics. <laughs> it's like a nice little block diagram. Hope is completely absent. So what I'm trying to do is, is not push aside every other concept and say, hey, you know, <laughs> hope's the most important. Um, I probably come across that way sometimes. What I'm trying to say is, hey, how can we talk about all these other aspects of philosophy, knowing and what is out there and so on, and not take into account how that relates to our hopes? And in fact, you know, most closely aligned with hopes would be ethics and morality. How can we have centuries of discussion about what is moral, what is good, what, what is, you know, uh, the good life? And hope doesn't even get mentioned. Now that I, I see hope so strongly, 
I'm flabbergasted that it's absent from these conversations. And that's all I'm trying to do. That's my little you know, mission is, is to bring hope into conversations. And I think it will open up new perspectives on old concepts. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy to be to be a, a humble springboard for this discussion. <laughs> a conduit. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, definitely happy that that this came on my radar and we did that and hopefully um, talks about it are going to proliferate and and deepen. So um, yeah, Nick, thank you so much for uh, for initiating this and I'm happy I'm happy to do it with another concept in the future. And um, yeah, before we go, are there any kind of links that you wish to share with listeners where they can find you and your thoughts? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm ironic, not Iron Nick, uh, I-R-O-N-I-C-K. Uh, I'm also ironic at Medium, where I post longer form content. Um, and if you're interested in uh, a two-part essay, Directly on this, this topic, uh, I recently published uh, a two-part essay on Erraticus, E-R-R-A-T-I-C-U-S dot com. And you can read that, uh, more there. Fantastic. So I'll link to those. And yeah, I just had on my podcast um, the editor of Erraticus. So uh, listeners might be familiar with it. Yeah, Nick, thanks again. Thanks so much. And looking forward to continuing the discussion at some other time. Thanks, Yeah. 